Buglers, we are live from Leicester Square Theatre on the 16th of September with Chris Addison and Alice Fraser. It might be our only London date of the year, so get your tickets now. Oh, get them at thebuglepodcast.com. That, that bit's important. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, you know what? If you like this podcast that I appreciate you've not listened to yet, because this is right at the start, but if you listen to this and find out you do like it, then afterwards, go onto the computer or phone and search for the lush podcast it's the podcast where lush unsurprisingly the lush podcast talk about the things that we think you'd be interested in hearing so check it out it's called the lush podcast and the easy way to remember that how i remember it is it's a podcast made by lush cool have a listen i might even host one time you never know probably not after this audition (sighs) done Welcome to Tiny Revolutions with me, Tiff Stevenson, the podcast that asks if comedy can be a force for social change. Please welcome to Tiny Revolutions, Kiri Pritchard McLean. Yes. Isn't it nice to be clapped on? Yeah, and without an introduction of um, this next comedian is lovely, which is their way of going. She's not really funny. So I quite like just like pure like happiness is quite nice. The lovely. I suppose it's changed now from being the next comic is a woman. Yeah, that's true. So they feel like they have to put a description. Maybe it's a way of leading the audience into thinking... I've got to tell them. I've got to tell them there's ovaries happening. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I describe the next act. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Lovely, because no one ever says that about men. <laughs> Have you ever heard a man described as lovely? Um, n- not no, not beyond being a child. No, you hear from <laughs> like a lovely, lovely little, little boy. boy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But never an adult man. Look at this gorgeous. Yeah, this gorgeous, lovely boy. Who did I heard Phyllis Diller describe someone as darling recently, and I was like, oh, that's nice, isn't it? Yeah, darling. You should always be darling. So welcome, welcome to the podcast. And what we explore on this podcast is whether com- whether or not comedy can be a force for social change, and. We've been very specific about who we asked to come on because I am talking to a range of people, but all people that I believe have done something in their stand up or on stage, which contributes to a part of a bigger discussion or societal change and moving forward. And I could say not almost every, but a lot of the female comedians, I believe, are part of a social change by talking about stuff that has been previously considered taboo or previously considered to be... um, like, I was gonna, I wasn't gonna say taboo as in periods because we've talked about that before. But I know, for example, your 
latest show, the one you did at the Fringe this year, is called uh, Victim Complex. Is yeah, it? Yeah, it, yeah, Victim Comma Complex. So it's important that I get that right. So, and in that, you do you talk about an abusive relationship? Yeah, yeah, I talk. It's about gaslighting, basically. Uh, spoiler alert if you come and see it <laughs> um, but yeah that was about I mean I was writing a show on something else I was writing a show on empathy and I had been talking to non-offending paedophiles um, had to put them on ice so I was writing that and then all this stuff was happening in my personal life and I just couldn't like not take it on stage as a way of like it sounds so wanky but processing it and then the more I started talking about it the, there was the, the weird first kind of backlash was people being like, ah, well, that wouldn't happen to you because I'm kind of like an empowered, smart woman. And me as well, while it was happening, being like, oh, this isn't... I I know how this feels and I know what's happening to me, but it's not what I think is happening isn't because I wouldn't let something like that happen to me. You, You know, you just think that because you're, you know, all these things that you pride yourself on being, you can't possibly be the victim of an abusive relationship. So... Yeah, I just thought, but then what happens is you just think you're going insane and it's terrifying. And then I started talking about it. And like, as I was talking about it, the the behavior, we weren't together anymore, but it escalated. So the, she's insane, she's a liar, she's mad, like just really blew up and was on kind of social media and like more and more my friends like were being sort of taken aside to be told, not taken aside, but you know, like that was the conversation around me was that I was, a, a very sick liar and it was like you believe it as well because you've been told it for years and uh, and then like the truth comes out and like everything you thought was happening was happening and you weren't losing your mind but by that time you've gone mental anyway <laughs> so so yeah I started talking about it and I just wanted this show to kind of reclaim the narrative that wasn't even like I'm gonna set the record straight I was like I have to talk about this and as soon as I started doing very early previews of it my memory was a room full of nodding women so me talking about and you say this thing and they say that thing to you and just women being like yeah absolutely and just the response of people coming up after shows or messaging I've had about like 500 messages from people who are like you just told my story almost beat for beat the exact same phrases exact same behavior I thought I was insane my friends thought I was mad because that's what happened to me we're in the same friendship circle and my closest friends thought I just lost my mind and then when it came out they were like oh god now what's interesting is for for some listeners that may not know and I think most people that are switched on to this podcast and listening to it will probably be up to date with what gaslighting is but it was a term originally coined I think it's a 1950s American film um so it comes from a play that was written in 1938 by Patrick Hamilton then it was made into there's two films right Um, and it's about a woman who is manipulated by her partner and I think the term gaslighting comes from the fact that he's switching lights on and off so he's searching the house for these jewels to sell them behind her back and as he's moving upstairs the gas lights flicker and she's like she's like someone's upstairs when he comes home in inverted commas right and uh, she's like I can see the lights flickering he's like no it's all in your hat and because she loves him she believes him so that's the literal the literal translation of what gaslighting is yeah but it's manipulating some- uh, uh, reality or things that are happening to make a person believe that they're crazy or doubt their own memory or ideas of, of what's happened yeah and I think the reason that that's landed and connected so much is like you say so many women have been through that to a degree especially with any kind of breakup or in a relationship that's coming to an end the 
lack of willingness. I mean, certainly when I, I've been with someone for 11 years now. So um, I am kind of, it's not that it's a distant memory for me. I, it definitely happened to me. It definitely happened to me loads. The craziness of kind of going, she tried to take my phone uh, to look to see if they were like, or she showed up or she said to this girl that she was suspicious that we were sleeping together. And we definitely weren't. From that small thing to being like, we kind of were. Yeah. And I may, I posted about her or I did a private thing or, but definitely being manipulated or being told a version of what you said is something that's happened to me. And it's not just within relationships. It can happen within meetings or totally within what we do for work. There can be, you can be in a room as a woman and make a suggestion. And five minutes later, a guy makes that same suggestion. And they're like, that's such a great idea. And you're like, is everyone mad? Yeah. I literally just said that to you. Yeah. Like I have, you know, that, that how often that happens. But what kind of examples of, of that behaviour would you... Well, I'm fascinated by the fact that it is like endemic. It's, it, I talk about, it's not just like romantic relationships. There's been people who messaged me who had it in, with their family. Their parents used to do it to them. Would, you know, and that, how scary is that? They're your anchor. Yeah. And they're the people who are making you think that you don't know your own mind. And work is such a common one where someone will, like, I, I talk about an example in the show where someone goes, oh, have you done that work for me? And and you go, no. And they go, I asked you to do it. In your head, you're like, I know you didn't because I've been sat here so bored. I would love to have done some work. I've been yeah. trying to pretend to work. But you just go, okay, I must have forgotten. But there's so many times where you just are constantly taught to, like, especially as women, to doubt Doubt your own mind. Yeah, exactly. And also the fact that, like, that narrative, all the language around kind of neuroses and hysteria and psychosis is is so gendered. So, like, the fact that, like, we're not. Hysteria, hysterical from the Greek for womb. Yeah, as in our wombs make us go crazy. I found this one out the other day, which I just thought was incredible um vagina is actually from the latin for sword sheath so that is a physical part of us no wonder men feel like it's their god-given right to be inside you like i can't think of a more perfect example of well that's, that's where that, i keep my willy that's where i keep my penis like so the the language of all of that because women weren't considered that's why so little is known about women's diseases yeah and in medical terms of like testing and finding out about diseases it was all men or things that affected men yeah. but something as small as that and i use that word all the time and now i'm going to be like i don't want to use that word anymore yeah when you I don't want to use a Latin word for a man's place to store his knob. I'm not having that. I'm not having that as my biological reality. Sorry. That's not what that's for. So... Yeah, so so like you say, those words like hysteria. It just feels really gendered. Cra- crazy ex-girlfriend. Yeah, even that as a phrase. And also that stuff that like, how dare we be brought up? Like we've all had this where like you hear boys around you being like, oh, she's mental, she's crazy, that kind of thing. And like we've been that girl where they treat you like a girlfriend, then they go cold on you, then they're really intense again. And they're like, sorry, I'm not great at opening up. And they text you all the time and then they go quiet on you. And that's you breadcrumbing, isn't it? Is, is that, that what breadcrumbing? Yeah, see, there's so many terms for this breadcrumbing is where you give a little bit to someone and they go oh they're still interested and then you withdraw again and then you so it's like a breadcrumbs you might get a text and then you might meet and have like a bit of a like
like, you know, it could be friends with benefits type thing, but breadcrumbing is where they leave a little pile and leave a little pile and leave a little Ugh. pile. Just enough. To, if you're starving, a breadcrumb yeah. is amazing. Right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so if you're starving for that affection or attention of that other person, you're like, oh, it's this little drop of hope in an yeah. ocean of despair. <laughs> so, But it's that whole thing that we're taught that like, and, and when they go, oh, it's because you're being crazy you're like, oh, I guess so, because that is a narrative that makes sense to you because it's always portrayals of women being sort of intense and neurotic. and uh, Emotional. Yeah, and, and overly emotional, as opposed to, like, dudes just being pricks sometimes. Well, and also, and I think the other side of that is men not being able to talk about their feelings. And I, I'm not a fan of the phrase toxic masculinity, I should say, because I think it makes men sound biohazardous. <laughs> but I understand the basis of it being that, that men shouldn't be emotional or talk about their feelings. So there's this sense of bravado and testosterone that always sort of comes to the front, which is part of this whole conversation around consent. You know, if girls own their sexual agents, if girls have sexual agency and they own their desires, Mm. and know that it's okay to express those and men know it's okay to express emotions yeah. or boys, you know, then we'd be in a much better place Definitely. as a society. But that is part of it. It's like women, they're too emotional. Oh, you're bringing emotion into it. And you go, no, you know, men can have emotions as well. Yeah. But around them, their peer group and what people tell them is that, no, you shouldn't have that. And also you're a don. That's what I thought about the vagina, the, the sheaf thing. I thought conquering the idea of like a conquest. Yeah you know, that women are something to be achieved and attained. And then once you've, you've got that piece of land or that thing, yeah. then you move on. But how do you separate yourself from that? Make them, make it that they're crazy. It's not your fault. Yeah, exactly. It's their fault for being emotional. And yeah, and exactly. It all comes back to our, f- our problem. And because also like, even again, as like an educated, empowered woman, to be like, to be told like you've been like one of those girls. I'm like, oh well, I've always prided myself on not being one of those girls. You know, like you do. You don't want to be that insane because we do know people, not just women, but the ones we can remember, all women that are fucking bonkers. So yeah. like when you're they're going, you're behaving like that. You're like, no, I'm not because I'm not one of those people. Or it's the trigger is if your partner says to you, you're acting like your mum. No. You forget that. One? Ah. That's, that's my one. That's something your mum would do, and I'm like, you never do that to me, ah. and you know to not to not do that to me. <laughs> But it's a real like that's like pushing a button. That's like your Achilles heel, you know. <laughs> I, I get it with like my my partner now. He's he's great. Uh, but like you know when they're like, are you on your period? And that, like my ex used to do that as well. Like I think you're about to come on. I'd be like, don't you dare. But like today, I like burst out crying about something tiny, and then later on, and he was like really good about it. And I was really like, well, I just think that was a really thoughtless thing to say. And I got really upset. And then later on, I was like, so I think I'm about to come on my period. And he was just like quietly smiling, and he was like, okay. And I was like, and I'm, I know that you know that, and I know that you know that some of my behaviour earlier was by that, and I would like to thank you for not bringing that up. <laughs> but like it was, it was me with like a little bit of distance on him. Oh yes, because I was about to rag. That's why. But we're, and again, we're taught to sort of feel about a little bit of shame about, and I think there's a generation of female comics that have kind of taken that away to a certain degree, but we are made to feel shame about that process and that we might be hormonal because men get hormonal as well. They get testosterone and they fight, you know, so we have this moment. I used to have a routine about describing periods to my boyfriend of one day we had a silly argument and he snapped at me and I honestly can't remember what it was about, but I was very sensitive and I was like, I'm on my period. And he was like, so, and I was like, well, I'm having my womb dragged out of me. Like that's, that's what's about to happen. I'm, I'm that inches away from that moment. And then describing building a house inside myself, 
<laughs> that, that being the amazing part of what women can do with our own bodies, we can build houses inside ourselves <laughs> for a baby. But but the 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 actually this is something quite magnificent and amazing that our bodies are able to do and we're put through the ringer because of it yeah and i'm not saying that it should be a cheap or easy excuse but to acknowledge that we do have mood changes you would, and, and emotional swings yeah you would you would acknowledge if your partner had been working too much and they were knackered and they're a bit shitty with you you'd be like in your head you'd be like i get it because they've been working like like you would understand that there's environmental like uh influences that affect our behavior towards but so why they wouldn't be like oh my hormones are going absolutely mad very quickly and I'm just going to feel a bit I'm just going to be a bit oversensitive for a while or however it manifests it's different with every person but I remember one of my early experiences doing the stand in Glasgow and one of the other acts who shall remain nameless we were sat backstage and I think it was Eva at the time who was working there came in and said a thing and as she left he went gosh she's so short today is she on blob or what that is part of the environment that makes you go well, I can't talk about this. I can't share about it because yeah. we will be diminished because of it. Yeah. It's a weak, another weakness. I constantly talk about being on rag all the time, like with all my boyfriends, like as in friends who are boys and my boyfriend. And my boyfriend is like, you don't have to tell me every single thing that is happening to you. He's very relaxed about it. He's like, well, it doesn't have to be this in depth. I'm like, yes, it does. Because I'm convinced that I'm going to die when we've got like three daughters. And I'm like, you're just going to have to pick up that mantle <laughs> and like to be so like, you you've know, like menstrual man. Yeah, you li- literally have. Yeah, you've got to understand what you're dealing with. You'll be able to talk through everything and he's like I mean that's fine but I am eating (laughs) (laughs) Paul's pretty good actually Uh, I have sent him out for tampons before and he's as he's left, he's gone, what magnitude? Which really made me laugh. <laughs> That's lovely. Like, I think that men think of them like bullets. They're just going to be fired up there. Um, so, so I think actually he's, and also because I have, and I can't remember if I've talked about this before, but you'll know anyway, but I get this like premenstrual, almost like dysphoria, uh, PMDD, it's called uh, dysphoric disorder, where I get like really about a week before. It's like like suicidal bleak, like ideation, like crazy. So he's very much, my other half has had to very much be part of that journey with me. Knowing that it's that is the thing that can save your life, that you go, this is a temporary feeling of low before I then come back into the world and realise that everything is not absolutely bleak mm-hmm. and it's a real genuine thing. And I think it happens as, you know, you know, sort of, tends to be women from sort of mid to late thirties get it. I don't think you have it so much. I didn't have it when I was younger, but it sort of came out of nowhere. And I was like, why do I feel so as someone who's been depressed before, I was like, this is terrifying. I don't know what this is. So understanding that, like taking the taboo away of talking about it and knowing that it comes with a set of unique hormones, problems and everything else is really, I think it's really Therapeutic, And that's where I do feel like comedy as part of the bigger conversation we're having here can be a force of social change as well. Totally. Just making that there's now girls who are unafraid to talk about that. And I think when I was growing up, and I think you're a bit younger than me, but I do every advert was period blood is blue yeah, and you have to go rollerblading yeah. or jump out of a plane you yeah. know in white trousers in white trousers it's always a white dress or white trousers yeah. you're like I wouldn't no wear one, them on a good day no one no one's wearing that like <laughs> who's wearing a it's like going oh do you know what I've got the shits today so I was thinking white jeans would be a good idea <laughs> yeah. you know like you wouldn't do it so I think that that is I think everyone's sort of if you if for example just you saying that that little small act 
because you know tiny revolutions are little small acts so even talk about it on stage or saying it to your partner or your male friends all the time of just going I'm on the rag which I love because it does sound like a West End musical <laughs> I would watch that as well I would watch that well, it's my on the two, rag. two like interests merged together is periods and musicals yes please I talked about in my second show I talked about um uh, I had this routine about moon cups and uh, like the, the, I would go, I'm going to talk about periods now and we're going to be fine because it's 2000 and whatever year it was when I was doing it, 18, 17. Um, and just like that was my way of without being that like either apologizing or being like, you have to be fine. It's look at what it is. And then did this like routine about moon cups. And that was me trying to be like, like they're great they're good for the environment like you you know just but there's also a really funny routine about me buying the wrong size and all this kind of stuff that can go in the musical yes yeah fly me to the moon (laughs) (laughs) but that's exactly it like it shouldn't be an issue i sometimes like um in this year's show i really like kind of Oh, it was this year, no, last year's show for Bombshell. I really kind of went for the guys in the audience and did and told them that it was rock and roll comedy. When I was on my period, I'm like, this is a woman bleeding on stage. <laughs> did all of your icons, did George Carlin or Bill Hicks or Richard Pryor ever do that? No, <laughs> it feels kind of like rock and roll. And I know men go, God, if it happened to us, we would relentlessly talk about it, you know. Um, but exactly that. It's, two, it's 2017, it's 2018. There was one year at the Fringe, I think, where... Like Carriad and Rachel Paris had done this big video about. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, was it Bad Blood? The Taylor yeah, Swift. Yeah. There, it felt like there was a wave, a big red wave, <laughs> of people kind of reclaiming it and talking about it. So um, yeah, and also the tampon tax. There was a bit of a kickback yeah. against that. So do you feel like when you're on stage, you're doing a form of activism, or or are you first going, I need to make this funny? And if that comes, it's a bonus. Mm, I always, for my shows, I'm like, what do I think needs talking about? And then I write something based on that. But I do the clubs. That's how I pay my mortgage. So it has to be funny above anything else. Don't get me wrong. Not everything I write on my show will do, you know, the frog or the store on a weekend. And it's not meant to either. But it has to be able to hold its own as proper stand-up. And that's, I also think that, like, you don't always do your like most challenging, highbrow, high concept stuff on a, a weekend, but there's always an element of that to what you're doing. And if you're in a rough club and you're s- surviving or smashing it, that in itself is a political act as a woman. As a woman, it is, isn't it? Just being up there is yeah. a political act. I remember Catherine Ryan saying that as well. I think um, I think the club gigs are interesting. I was talking to Nish on a prior episode about having a really nice experience once at up the creek and I don't go on and go I'm a feminist I just think if if I have to say what it is I've sort of failed a little yeah, bit yeah, yeah. I don't like this idea of spoon feeding to people what they're getting but having like older men come over and go and it was a routine about consent and smashing back doors in but like I've never really thought of it that way before like that's so great so is there ever a moment where you have an audience member who where you in, in one of those club gigs where you've snuck something in under the radar or you've had or you're doing one of your bits that you go I'm going to do this bit and this bit and this bit and here's my juicy bit that I want to talk about yeah, this yeah, in the middle exactly. of it right? snuck that in. yeah have you ever had anyone come over and go oh I love that you did that or I love that you spoke about that it's really nice when like 
people you don't expect because like loads of time it's women being like I love the routine about like you know like whatever like I don't show my legs either or like I mean I do show my legs but it's, it's about there's, I've got stuff about waxing and and uh, crabs dying out which is a true thing keep it careless because <laughs> there's, there's a it's the destruction of their natural habitat which is true the, the, um, so the, I had the routines yeah exactly <laughs> I had routines about that and then you get people coming up and like or someone will hack or all and like you know and you it's something that happens in the room and then you get yeah like a like older like working class guy who like through definitely my own internalized prejudice that I'm like mm, this isn't for you um being like oh I hadn't even thought about it like that and you're like yes exactly you just need to think about it like that and then in, in that case you can be that's my comedy is astounding and like conversing generally like comedy is so brilliant because generally that's why I never want to really stop doing the circuit like I know some people can't wait to get off it but I think it for a start it keeps you match fit oh I agree I work up all my Edinburgh shows doing club gigs yeah because it has, should if be I that can good sm- smash it in those rooms exactly then I can take it out to my crowd and go I've got this to to a point where you know you're not just going to be nicely enjoying it because you like me yeah exactly yeah it should just hold its own and it also you never get that far out of touch with actual real people because we are in a bubble uh, and like especially like I, I live in manchester if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery think again juvederm volux xc is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime even better this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment no maintenance required improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with juvederm volux xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. But, like, I think more so bubbled down here of, like, you know, like wealth and, and privilege, you know, relative privilege, obviously. Um, and you can have an idea like, well, everyone agrees with me. And then stuff like Brexit happens. You're like, well, maybe not. <laughs> um, but if you're playing the clubs, you never lose sight of that because you are me- meeting like, you know, probably about 600 people every weekend who are normal, who work really hard for their money. And they save up and they go out like, you know, once a month and they'll go to a comedy night. So you can't get that out of touch if you're talking to real people. Because they will also shout out if they don't agree with you and you suddenly find out that you're not in touch or, you know, and like you say, if you can make that Edinburgh stuff work in those rooms, then that's great. I always think when I'm writing stuff, I'm like, would my dad enjoy this? Because he's right. just like a, he's not university educated, he's like a mechanic, he's in his 70s, he's only ever really lived in rural Wales. I'm like, if he can enjoy the show and get it and laugh, then that's what I want because it's 
absolutely irritatingly pointless to me, only making a show that postgrads, you know, from privileged backgrounds can enjoy. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, great. They already agree you with you. We can all do a, sm- a smarmathon. Yeah, exactly. I'm not saying that everyone who has a postgrad, uh, <laughs> but you know, there, there, there is a, the mm-hmm of agreement. Yeah. They're bringing back, we were clicking <laughs> kicks now. Like I think in New York is coming back as a form Gross. of agreement, which means, yeah, we agree. And you're like, no, I want laughs. Yeah. I do want laughs. Yeah. I want laughs and um, I want to challenge, but that's, I kind of like that. I like a, a bit of being provocative and I like a bit of, the pull and push in those rooms sometimes. Definitely. That you can get and winning them. Because yeah. there is there are there are some people who I go, it's not for you and my my entire career cannot be trying to convince men yes. that don't ever want to find women funny. Yeah. Funny. But there are a few people that you're like, if you like this type of comic who's a guy, you're going to like me. Yeah. So you've got to give it a gut and I'll, I'll win you. Yeah, Those yeah. are the ones I'm interested in sort of winning. Definitely. Like the, the older guys up the creek or someone at the Frog and Bucket or the store in Manchester. Yeah. Those are the people that you want. And sometimes, you know, I'll, I did a weekend at the Manchester store recently and I had a couple of bits that were like quite sort of like rhetoric, they're routines with jokes in them, but they're quite rhetoric-y. And it's interesting when you're on bills with other people who's, who's, uh, routines might be joke, joke, yeah. joke, joke, joke. Or if you come out, it's like negotiating those things that are all the things that make you a better comic. If you come on after someone, I, I recorded a thing for Kevin Hart's Laugh Out Loud in Montreal. And the first act up was this guy from Atlanta who did a routine about the strip club. And the one of the first lines was, you know, when you pull the bottle out, this bottle of a stripper's arse and it's covered in fecal matter. And you sort of go, so how do we follow this? Yeah. Do, it's so relatable. Yeah, every, I can feel everyone in the room really thinking that's that's a relatable routine. So for you, it's a challenge you think you always want to be part of. Definitely. I think it makes you just better um, because I, I want to be the kind of comic who can do Edinburgh and do the clubs. I've always like prided myself on coming up through the clubs and then... I did as well. And I think there's loads of comics who, who do both. It's quite a lot, you know, like Andrew Maxwell and people like that yeah. and... You know, like, I think you, it, it's, there were lots of people who were able to do both. I think there was one point in Edinburgh, it might have been Bruce Dessau or someone like that, but it was like, you know, it's sort of these people don't push themselves as hard or, or since it was seen as like, oh, something cheap to try and go and earn money, you know, to go and get money. Whereas like, actually these other people, they create these beautiful work of art shows and you're like, you know, it's possible to do both. Yeah. And I think that's classism, which is which yeah, is one I thing I'd like to talk to you about actually as well, about comedy as a force for social change, because I feel like within comedy itself, there can be a real issue with class yeah, and how we define or the prism through which we view what people do and the allowances we give to people who we think are more educated from better backgrounds yeah. as opposed to people who are working class. Do you think that's a, an issue? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like in entertainment generally, it's something that needs to be addressed because we talk about like quotas and diversity in terms of loads of things of, you know, like, and we should do, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have those conversations, but it's never in terms of class, which means that it's massively underrepresented and all these things that people talk about like if you I came up through the circuit as because something I wanted to do everyone I admired was on the circuit and as a necessity because if I wanted to make comedy pay I needed to learn how to pay those big rooms because those are the people who are going to pay me because I don't take money from my parents and I never have 
and like I had, you know, bills to pay. And then at one point I had a mortgage to pay. So, you know, it was just my way of like making it, yeah, like making it earn. And also that's like, there's one eye on that with like touring my shows as well, making sure they're accessible because normal people need to come and see my shows and not feel like isolated. So I think it's really, I have such a complicated relationship with class because I'm like my farmer's daughter, um, my parents scraped all their money together and I was the youngest of three and sent me to a private primary school my secondary school was a normal school because I picked that one I, I got like I was going to go to a boarding school but they well they couldn't afford it I would have to day at this uh, private school and I was like I don't want to go there I wanted to go to a state school so but I have like worked through the like tax system since I was 14 I've worked on a farm since I was a child I would have to get up in the morning and I would have to after work I would have to start working so like I work harder than most people I know I have a good work ethic and I have such a complicated relationship when I see particularly there's a, there's a thing at the moment there's a bit of a groundswell in the like northern circuit as well where, which feels overlooked because a lot of it Edinburgh is prohibitively expensive yeah and there were so many people from so many backgrounds going I can't justify that if they've got kids absolutely not I can't piss off and leave my husband or my wife to look after the children for four weeks and I go then make four grand loss just to, and have a good run still and yeah. do all that so it just means that a certain type of person finds Edinburgh accessible because uh, I didn't even know it existed till I was about 27 28 I didn't even know it was a thing that existed yeah like I remember when Gaines got nominated and we were all like Salford Uni graduates and just walking into those rooms with people who clearly felt like they belonged there and you don't. You're just like, what are we doing here? You feel like an idiot. And you're like, no, no, we're here because we worked really hard and we did a good show and we got nominated. But you're just like, I remember when Nika sat us all down, we're having our photos taken and she was like, you know, like, well done. And then she was like, you know, as part of this, you'll get a run at the Soho Theatre. And we all went, fuck it, yeah. (laughs) We like couldn't believe it. And everyone else was like quietly nodding because they just knew it and expected it. And it was like the whole time was feeling like we were just these like wide-eyed idiots that didn't know the system and we were um and I just think that's a shame it should feel like all this stuff should feel accessible and it isn't like where I came from in Wales like it's middle of bumblefuck nowhere and I went to this drama club and that's how I ended up doing what I was doing because at 15 I was I like, went to a drama stuff. club yeah. or like a kid's not like uh, oh Sharon Harris it was called but kind of they have Anna Share in North London which is where Ray Winston came through and people like that and the, the West London one was was Sharon Harris and I would go to classes and that's where I came yeah. through and managed to get and I managed to get a commercial early doors and start working but I couldn't even I remember asking my parents if I could go to Sylvia Young and like you know that just cost my we just yeah. couldn't couldn't do it I used to pay for my own fees to go to this is called uh, it doesn't exist anymore which is one of the reasons why I am moving back to Wales to start one up because there's nothing for those children who are talented and like or not even you don't have to be talented you could just want to meet other people who are like you and you could just want something that's going to build your confidence you know not everyone has to end up on television but like there is nothing there and this uh, it was Anna Baker School of Drama was called and we used to go there and it was just like this whole world of like everything and it was just like loads of like devising loads of comedy loads of musical theatre but just being like oh this forever and being like so into it and it being so good for me yeah it's gone and an outlet for kids from I think we're put off if you're from a working class background you're put off at being told it's not a sustainable career and there's no money in it and that you can't do, not for the likes of us type thing. And I have a complicated relationship with class in the same way that my mum's from a real working class background, got Welsh family, 
Um, and then like Romany Gypsy on my uh, grandfather's side. And my dad is from like quite rich Scottish Presbyterians. Oh, wow. So, but like when I was born for the first year, I was disowned by my grandmother because she said my mum couldn't speak the Queen's English. Like all of these kind of things. And then so we lived, you know, we live in a terrace house and a pretty, you know, it's not it's suburban, but it's not rough rough but it's not great area of west london and then you know like there were points where my mum and dad split up a few times when we were younger and me and mum went in and out of like you know these sort of b&b's you know like they have you know so i've kind of like seen all sides of it but then my dad when i was growing up worked at wembley stadium so i ended up having this kind of entry into not show business but being around being around that but not really being part of it as a performer for the other side of it from you know and seeing all of that and being kind of excited by showbiz and everything else but I had no idea how easy it can be if you are at the right school and you know the right the right people yeah so there I remember applying to drama schools I think after I left school and I, I was like just doing temping jobs and stuff and promos and stuff like that and uh, not applying to drama schools, applying to acting agents and kind of like half of them just didn't even respond. This is when I was about 16 or 17. And that's how I ended up in Sharon Harris. She was the person who picked up the phone and went, well, I don't know who I'm turning down. So, and she'd get all these working class kids and bring them in. And they've gone on to do like, fr- you know, friends of mine who were there, like some of them were in Girls Aloud. I think Nicola was in Girls Aloud. And there's a girl called Stephanie Leonardis. She's in America doing all these big American sci-fi dramas and wow. stuff. And they had all these kids and they, they kind of got them off the street. And there was not off the street, but it was, it was like kids, you know, hormone surgeon going through teenage years and trying to express emotions and actually doing comedy improv and that kind of thing, being yeah. a really good way to kind of channel that so good and knowing that that's an opportunity for a career there was a thing that des bishop did um des bishop did a program in ireland and i always remember thinking i think this should exist here as just as a scheme where he went into what they call schemes in scotland or estates and he taught people stand-up comedy and it's it's incredible um there's a comic have you ever met willa white willie white Irish comic. He used to be a heroin addict. And if you if you're in Dublin with with Willie, he'll show you around. Right. He go, I used to use there. I used to shoot up there. Him and his wife. They're now clean. He does stand up for a career. It's like you could write a film about his life, yeah. how comedy has changed his life and taking him from being an addict to going, you have a voice and something worth saying and you can make people laugh and people care about you. They're interested in you. It's transformed him. And that was part of this series that Des did. So I went around like Ballymon and places like that and into the estates and found people and taught them stand-up comedy. And then they wow. do stand-up comedy for the estate. I used to do street theatre and that had like quite a lot of a vibe like that sort of in it. And yeah. I do think like it would be so amazing to have, imagine having a thing where they're going to some of the really, you know, uh, estates where there's poverty and but more than poverty there's poverty of aspiration which I think is a real yeah. real sad desperate say, state of affairs is the poverty of aspiration if you are in a situation where you're like I'm going to join a gang I don't see any other way out I'm never going to get the good things in life yeah so it's not just about financial poverty it's about totally where you think you can be and to go in there and to teach those kids writing you know we had all the kitchen sink dramas in the 60s those seem to have disappeared all those working class voices again so if we had a chance to kind of go in and and go hey look we'll teach you stand-up comedy we'll teach you comedy writing and sketches yeah I i did that like i um 
only just sort of stopped teaching it. I just don't have time at the moment. But I used to do... Um, so I do stand-up workshops with um, homeless people. I say people, it's mainly men that are homeless. So I go and do workshops with them. Um, and that was amazing, like the stories that you have in there. But, like, no one listens because what do you do? You, most people keep their eyes down and walk past someone homeless. So, like, hearing everyone's stories is incredible. And something about stand-up, it gives you such an agency to tell your story in your words. So also did it in loads of stuff in Mid-Wales, which really suffers with rural poverty, which is, like, this invisible thing, which is something that, like, definitely where I grew up is a big problem. So Powys is this huge county in the middle of Wales and there's fucking nothing there. But um, so we went and we did work with different groups. We worked with um because also arts council I don't see comedy as a thing but this guy had managed to get arts council funding for us and some funding from somewhere else that was to do with mental health and I remember these theatre people being like you won't get anything out of them and being like you know this one this person is non-verbal and this is this and this is this I was like okay just leave it with me because like <laughs> the thing about comedy is like it, what does everyone want to do, especially when you're a teenager, you want to make everyone laugh. So, like, you just create this amazing environment that's, like, they get up and say anything, and if it's near funny, they get this, like, big roar of laughter, and you can just see them physically grow because, like, they suddenly stand up straight because they're like, what is this feeling? Because these are young people that people don't listen to that people tell to be quiet all the time because quite often they're shits so it's like pupil referral units and um, special educational needs um and like could we work with a drama group as well who are all like hi and they're great i'm like they don't really need us except some of them are going to find stand-up and they didn't know that was the thing that they were good at um but like the the ones i loved was when you have six 15 year old boys who are constantly vaping and walking in and out of the class <laughs> and like trying to ask you sexual questions like I'm going to get embarrassed and you have them be like I'm not doing it and then one of them's like yeah I'll do it and then smashes it and then suddenly they all want to do it I remember this one guy standing up he's one of 11 this kid and uh, he started talking and sort of like told these jokes and we're all laughing and then he just said he talked about how his mum had died when he was nine years old and since then he'd looked after his brothers and sisters and I was like, oh, my God, because he had just never said it out loud and had anyone listened to it before. And it was like, wow. it was amazing. It was amazing. And like such an act of bravery. Also, we worked with these young people and um, look. Uh, so we looked after children who were children in care. Uh, that's incredible. Again, that's like such a complicated, like, you know, there's loads of love there, like for foster parents, but it's all sorts of attachment. of rejection. Of and... course, overwhelmingly, that is the feeling. So like incredible stories. And the one that re like really broke my heart was we worked with children who were carers for their parents. And like this amazing thing, because in that they're often quite, they're the kind of kids who are very good at talking to grown ups, but not anyone their own age. And they kind of stick together, these, these young carers, because they get taken the piss out of because quite often they're knackered, they're not very fashionable, you know, that everything's yeah. on a budget, all they that don't stuff. don't go and hang out with... Exactly, all the, the stuff that you don't need when you're a teenager. So they're quite fun and boisterous and they, they kind of know each other. And it's so nice because, like, they're just kids showing off and being really fun. And then the sad thing is that they walk out of there and you know that they've got to go and... Be got to go and wash. Yeah, I've got to go and look after my two siblings and I've got to go and wash, make sure mum's had a bath do everyone's lunches for tomorrow and like it was it was that was hard because I was like the others I'm like I can give you a break and I can give you a sight of something and like well because when they're talking to me because I'm from somewhere like that and the the good thing I don't know if it's the private school or it was my upbringing or having two older brothers it's probably a combination of it that I was always like 
oh, the, the arrogance has really seen me through because I'm like, mm, I'm definitely good enough to be doing all this. <laughs> so like, I never had that, like, I guess I won't make it. I'm like, oh, babes, I'll make it. <laughs> like, I was so, like, determined. Like, just how I meet, like, you know, those white average guys from private schools, I have that confidence. And that's really sort of, like, stood me in good stead. And I would just love to impart that on anyone else because there's so many talented, talented, brilliant people with stories to tell that don't get to say them. That's what I always think about when we talk about like moving things forward for women in countries and developing nations. But like the best thing you can do is educate your women because when you emancipate women, like it's just the biggest boost for the economy. Like don't talk about the internet. Don't talk about this. Talk about educating your women. It's the quickest way for a country to start making money. And I always think that about countries as well. I'm like, if we just educated like women everywhere we'd have cured cancer someone somewhere would yeah. have had the uh, do you know what I mean like there's so much stuff that could be helped because like nearly half the brains in the world aren't being allowed to work to their full potential yeah so yeah I just think that like we can make such a difference with comedy and like in two days these these boys who were like sat there in hoodies not paying attention were suddenly up on stage doing like five minutes of stand-up and smashing it and you can you can just have these conversations that are difficult with comedy very easily and very quickly because it is fun. Yeah, you can shine a light in a dark corner and expose it and laugh at it and kind of by bringing it into the room, sometimes it takes the, like the gaslighting thing, like jokes about Bill Cosby, when that sort of happened, you felt there was a real, some people were a kickback, like, you can't talk about this. And you're like, no, because if you don't talk about this, what you do is you sweep it under the carpet. Yeah. And that makes it worse for everyone. Yeah. So bring it into the room. Yeah. Bring it into the room. We'll rip it apart. Yeah. You know, and the, the whole point about anything jokes about Cosby is you're like, I'm not going to make jokes at the expense of victims. Yeah. That's Anyone who's decent and good at comedy doesn't, wouldn't do that. Yeah, exactly. But I reserve the right to make jokes about him. Yeah, of course. You know, and he's what, one year or two years in jail that he's now been it's sentenced ridiculous. to. Ridiculous. You know. so ridiculous. And his lawyer trying to argue because he's an old frail man. That, you know, I mean, he can't be in an open prison. You just go, oh, that just means he's not going to pay. You had to have an entire life of luxury and pay nothing and other people have suffered. But that's why, you know, you go, now is the time, you know, that comedy can do that. That moment with Hannibal coming out and, and talking about that on stage is a real kind of... It feels like com like the conversations being had in comedy at the moment are braver and more direct than anything in politics and anything in like the justice system. It's like, why are comedians sorting out the sexual attackers? Why are comedians calling out the sexism? Why are comedians, like, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> why is it us having to have the conversations? But it's a good thing, I guess, because we can, because I guess if whoever stands up a politician and, you know, like, yeah. You know, does a speech about misogyny? You're like, yeah, whatever. But when Hannah Gadsby does an incredible show about it, people watch and they listen and they learn from it. So I guess it's I guess it's up to us to fix the world. <laughs> <laughs> we well, can take it on. Yeah, I, we've got a couple of afternoons. We can sort it out between us. Somewhere. Yeah, I reckon. <laughs> yeah, take put some shifts in. We'll that's, start WhatsApp. <laughs> <laughs> that's really exciting though about the school. Then that you're and I want to so make you're sure moving back to do to do that. Are you? Yeah, in the next couple of years, when I feel like I can definitely not be constantly on call to London. Right. Although it's not too far from London, but like I, I'm a country girl at heart. And um, yeah, I just, I really believe in uh, putting something back. And I know how important that place was to me. So it's, that seems like the obvious thing to do. Yeah. It's really, I I think that's really important that people listening to this go, can we not set up some of these centres or places in lots of different areas in the UK and where it's, 
it feels, you know, life is hard. Let's have a little bit of creativity, even if then, even if people aren't going to go into a career doing that, to be able to express yourself creatively is really Why does important. everything have to be a career as well? Like, you know, you could just be great at it and it can be your outlays and like the transferable skills. Like I have never not got a job because I can talk my way into every single job. It's, oh, we're, we're top blaggers. Yeah. Comedians are like the ultimate blaggers. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So all that you learn from, you know, like being up on stage and puffing out your chest and, you know, like all that stuff is, is just so good. It's, it's so, yeah, it's so brilliant for young people. It's brilliant for everyone, to be honest. And that's what I saw. Like, I remember doing a thing with the homeless people where they had this, um, it was a conference and it was all the different organizations around the Northwest who work with homeless people and they were bringing them together. And they were like, whilst we're talking about this thing, can you take everyone, at, like all these homeless people and can you do a workshop with them? And I'm like, well, yeah, but there was hundreds. I was like, I'm do my best. So we just sort of did a bit of a thing and, and like had people up doing stuff. And I remember this one guy going up and he was, he was the youngest person. There was only like 17, he was homeless. And uh, he started, he was, he was like, the whole time he was like jiggling in his seat and you could tell he just so wanted to go up. I was like, mate, do you want to go up? He's like, I'm like, you haven't sat still. And he's like, no, 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 I'll be all right, I'll be all right. And then he would be like, uh, you know, like trying to guess the end of people's jokes. He was so into it. And I was like, I think you're going to be great. Just come up and do it. And so he got up to the, he got up to the microphone. He got like his first four words out and then he totally broke. And he's like, I can't do it. I can't. He started swearing, he started to walk away. And I remember this woman who obviously knew him was also homeless. She ran up beside him and she dragged him to the microphone and she put his hand around his waist and she was like we can do this and he did it and it was like it was like everyone was really laughing but like I was like oh my god in tears again because I was about to come on I was like I cannot (laughs) deal with this but it was like the most special beautiful moment that that young brilliant talented guy got to have in front of a room full of people he got to make them laugh and be brilliant because he is brilliant just circumstances haven't allowed him to be and just a taste of that is like you might think oh life changing yeah, it's life changing because he might just go, I can't believe I got up and did that. What else can I do? It's so important to give people a chance. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks I think it's me. been magnificent. Yeah, go check out uh, All Killer No Filler. Yeah, thank you, mate. This is Kiri's podcast. Thanks for coming. Also from Lush Podcast, the John Robb tapes. Punk legend John Robb digs through his cassette tapes to bring you exclusive interviews with other musical icons. Some are from The Vault and some are brand spanking new. Find the John Robb tapes wherever you find podcasts and on the Lush Player. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 